seat up. There we go. You can turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 13. This is the last mention of uh, Elisha in the Bible, the prophet Elisha, apart from Luke chapter 4, where Jesus mentions him. This is the last story of the prophet Elisha. So this will be the last sermon about his ministry. Um, I do hope you guys have enjoyed it and, and benefited from it. Uh, he's a great man, did a lot of great things. Uh, but as we come to this chapter, one of the, one of the uh, commentaries I read gave this header to this section of Scripture, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Uh, I think I can tell some of you are, are pretty familiar with that phrase. Uh, I wonder if you know where it came from. Now, I am not, my five minutes of Googling does not compare to a, a college education of, of history like Pastor Lawrence, so forgive me if I'm off here a little bit, but that phrase was first written in 1849 by a French writer named Jean-Baptiste Alphonse Carr after the French Revolution of 1848 that overthrew the French monarchy and established the French Republic. And a man named Napoleon was installed as the first president of France. Now, where does the phrase come in? Because if you are a history buff, that's, that's not actually the French Revolution and the Napoleon that you guys are used to. Exactly 50 years before that ended the more well-known French Revolution. Now, we get the book, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, that overthrew a French monarchy that established a French republic and whose first leader was named Napoleon. That happened twice. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Now, that's fascinating. Uh, the same thing happened, and so this French writer wrote those words to express his I guess you could say skepticism, that some of these giant, history-changing, earth-shattering events that happen don't actually fundamentally end up changing anything. So that's what that phrase means. The more things change, the more they stay the same. As, as many different you know, circumstantial things can change, it's sometimes it, it feels like, most of the time, at the core, things just don't really end up changing all that much. Now, Elisha, at the very end of his ministry here, now he spent, I think, close to 50 years of being a prophet in Israel. He spent 50 years doing miracles, uh, winning wars, four wicked kings, trying to wake up the nation of Israel out of their sinful slumber, helping them see that they need to follow the Lord and worship him and sacrifice to him. He's even, the very last text that we read was a small form of, of judgment being poured out through Jehu to show what sin deserves. And now we get to the end of Elisha's life. And after all of that, what we find out is nothing's really changed. Elisha's done so many years of good work and nothing's changed. So where do we go from here? Now, if you remember, the, the very first audience that probably would have, have, have read this or heard it, heard it read to them or been, been taught this story is, is exiled Israel, sitting in Babylon um, after God has judged them. That group of people for whom nothing changed over hundreds of years of their history and continued 
to rebel against God, which led to the mess of, of having their country and their homes wiped out. And you can imagine now sitting in exile and sitting in Babylon thinking, well, are things ever going to change? Maybe they didn't hope for that before, now they do. They desperately hope things are going to change. You can imagine the note of despair in their minds, sitting in exile uh, for their sins and wondering, is something going to change? And it can be like that for us too. And I couldn't help but think of vacation Bible school this past week, um, which we had, if you didn't know. Uh, Four nights of craziness in the church here. And we're going to try this. I thought, the more I thought about this text and this message, the themes of VBS just really come through in it. So we're going to try this. We sang this song like eight times at least this week, kind of the theme song for the week. So kids, if you can help me out here and fill in the blank, there's two kingdoms, but they're not the same. There's only... That didn't go over as I thought. Man. That's too bad. There's only one king who will never change. We sang, we sang that like a dozen times, I promise. <laughs> There's only one king who will never change. So kids, at least, you can take that away. Know that that's what this sermon is about. The king never changes. And even when it seems like sin and the sinful world do not change, whether you're battling within your own heart or whether you're struggling for things out with the things outside of you, those, it feels like they never change. There's good news too, and it's that your king does not change. That is great news. So let me pray for us, and then we will read this text and get into it. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we do uh, praise you as the King of Kings, We praise you for speaking to us, for giving us your word of salvation and good news. And we know that on our own, it is just completely undeserved that you should reveal yourself to us and speak to us. But because of Christ and because of his work on our behalf, it is deserved. And so we do ask that you would speak to us like you've said you would. Give us your truth. And help us to walk away from here, changed to look more like Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together from 2 Kings chapter 13. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. 
For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash, his son, reigned in his place. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now the bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as, as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha, and as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times, Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Amen. <clears throat> uh, now you can tell there's, there's a lot in there, a lot we could talk about. The verse that I want to key in on and that I hope is the lens through which you look at this entire chapter is verse 23, right near the end. The Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our God does not change, and there is a one specific way in which he does not change, and it's the theme that we've 
actually read in each one of these passages now so far because of the covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God does not change, and his covenant promises do not change either. Uh, Covenant is one of those good church Bible words that we throw around a lot, and I wonder if maybe we have a hard time actually knowing what it means, but a covenant just basically is, is an inseparable bond made between two parties that includes promises and vows and stipulations. So I know many of you were at the wedding yesterday. Many of you were at the wedding two weeks ago. We've seen this a lot. We've seen the covenant marriage ceremony with lots of vows and lots of promises and lots of stipulations. Just like the wedding yesterday, God has made certain promises and vows to us. And throughout this chapter, I think what we see is you could say four covenant vows that God makes to his people, to exiles, to sojourners, to his followers who need help. When a sinful world and our own sins seem to never change, four covenant resources at your disposal, four covenant vows to hold on to. Number one is a merciful God. Number two is a stirring promise. Number three is an unending hope. And number four is a sure word. So number one is a merciful God. Verses one through nine. Uh, This whole business with King Jehoahaz. And we left off in the history of Israel with Jehu being the king of Israel who had poured out the judgment. He'd killed a whole lot of people, if you remember. Uh, he was God's instrument of judgment. Turns out he was, a, he was a disappointing king to rule over Israel. He did not follow the Lord wholeheartedly, and now his son, Jehoahaz, is king. According to verse 2, he's just another evil king, just like every other king we've had in Israel, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from them. Nothing changes. But Jehoahaz does something very strange. In a very desperate moment, uh, in verse 4, he sought the favor of the Lord. That is a strange thing for an evil king to do, to seek the favor of the Lord. But What's actually a lot more strange than that is that the Lord listens to him. Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listens. But why does the Lord listen? For he saw the oppression of Israel and how the king of Syria oppressed them. The oppression of God's people moves God's heart to act. And it's really, it's, it's, it's a very, um, it's a vivid imagery, this word for oppression, that really gets at the idea of squeezing. Just like you're, you're squeezing the life out of somebody or something. God sees Syria squeezing the life out of his beloved children. And so the Lord listens, the Lord intervenes, and the Lord helps, and the Lord sends a Savior. That's amazing. Now, it's a little, it's a little bit um, unclear who this Savior is exactly. Um, the text doesn't tell us exactly. Some, some very good scholars point to 
Actually, looking forward in the chapter in verse 17, the Lord's arrow of victory could also be called the Lord's arrow of salvation. So perhaps Jehoash is a form of a savior, even though he's a wicked king. And the king after him, Jeroboam II, quote-unquote, saves his people later on. So God is working this plan out. He, He gives them a savior, but the point is that it's God's pity for his wayward people. Now, this section should actually sound very familiar because it's, it's a repeated theme that you've read elsewhere in the Bible, in the Judges. God's people worshipped false idols. The anger of the Lord is kindled. He gives them into the hand of a foreign nation. They cry out to the Lord in pain. The Lord listens and the Lord delivers and sends a Savior. Uh, it's, it's amazing that this, this same God is showing pity to his people again. He did this when the people were in Egypt as well. In very similar language. You can, either of these images, whether the people are sinful and rebelling from God themselves or whether they're oppressed by a foreign people not of their own fault in Egypt and being enslaved, God listens, God hears, God knows, and God comes down to do something about it. And we know that we're all sinners and don't deserve God's mercy. But even Israel here, I mean, these guys are really, really bad and really, really don't deserve God's mercy, don't they? Because this isn't even actually the chosen half of the nation. This isn't Judah. This is the northern Israel. They've consistently walked away from God for all of their history. They're not the nation from whom the Messiah will come. They're not the nation from whom the Christ will come. They just keep walking away. And actually, do you notice there's a break in the pattern of judges? Because every time God sent a deliverer, the people would repent for a time and turn to the Lord. But they don't do that here. They don't even repent. They don't even turn back to God. At least in judges, they would serve him for a little bit. But the warmth of God's love here is met with cold ingratitude. And yet his heart is still wide open to them. And he saves them. Now I wonder if we really understand God's pity and mercy this deeply. Um, I've been reading through a book for a while now, very slowly, because it's so good, called Gentle and Lowly. And in it, the author says this, that it just explores God's heart. Not his plan, not his sovereignty, but his heart. And one of the things that he says in that book is, God's heart is not brittle, not easily offended, not cold, not unmoved. It actually takes a lot of accumulated provoking to draw out God's wrath. Not once in Scripture do you see God provoked to love, or provoked to mercy. He just is rich in mercy. There's a, I'm a Michigan State graduate, and I love sports, and so there's a saying about somebody like me, if you cut me, I bleed green and white. If you were to cut God, he bleeds mercy. It just courses through his veins. He is rich 
and love and mercy. And it actually takes a lot to provoke him to wrath and anger. And isn't that just so the opposite of us as humans? Aren't we very easily angered? And don't we need to be provoked to show love or mercy? But God is merciful to the point of it being frustrating. Because you read through Kings and you see him just consistently walk away from God and worship idols and say no to him and reject his promises. And you just can't help but thinking, okay, when is enough enough? Right? Don't they finally deserve something to happen? But God still rescues sinful people. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, 17th century Puritan, says, it's, it is God's natural work to love and show mercy, and it's his strange work to pour out wrath. It's a good way of thinking about God. He, it is his natural work to show mercy. It's his strange work to pour out wrath. And so what happens if you don't understand this vow? What happens if you don't understand that you have a merciful God, not a brittle God, not an easily offended God? Well, if you don't believe this about God, you're not ever going to go to him with your sin. When you need help, when you are tempted, I wonder if you ever find yourself hiding from God after you sin. I certainly feel this way sometimes. Do you ever feel too bad to pray? You ever mess up so bad one time and you think, I'm going to need a few hours, maybe a couple days to just like cool off and like make myself good and cleaned up again enough before I come back to God and ask for forgiveness and ask for help? I think that's a natural human inclination. It's our natural expectation that when somebody sins, when we sin, we get thrown out like a piece of garbage. But that's not the way that God looks at us. God does not cast out. And so you are free to come to him. If he is your father and he is your savior and he is your king, you're free to come to him and repent and bring all your sins. You're free to be forgiven, to be changed and then to keep pressing on unburdened by that guilt and expecting God to change you out of your corruption. Now, he does expect change and transformation, and that's one of the problems with Israel. They don't change after this mercy. But for those of us who, who fall into that temptation of feeling like, can God really listen to me? Would he really listen to my prayer? Aren't I just too bad? You need to understand that you have a merciful God who has his arms open. He wants you to come to him with your sin. He doesn't want you to stay away. He doesn't want you to have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to prove yourself to God. His arms are open for you to come to him. First of all, we have a merciful God. Secondly, we have a stirring promise. Yeah, in verses 10 through 19, it's more of the same again. Jehoahaz passes away, and his son, Jehoash, takes the throne. 
And you can see probably a footnote in there. It kind of goes back and forth between using Joash and Jehoash. They're the same person. Jehoash is a wicked king, and there's actually not much that's noteworthy about him. Verses 10 through 13 just kind of cruise through his kingship. But the most noteworthy thing about him is this interaction with Elisha. Now, Jehoash has inherited a woefully depleted army from his father because of the oppression of Syria, and he goes to visit Elisha on his deathbed, and he does give this sort of cry, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to take him sincerely, though, uh, that he's sincerely grieving the death of Elisha. He's probably a little bit more concerned about the military aid that he doesn't get from this man anymore. Regardless, Elisha wants to encourage him. And so he puts Jehoash through kind of this ritual where they shoot a bow and arrow together out of the eastward-facing window. And the symbolism of it is, in verse 17, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. You shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. Elisha makes that, that symbolism really, really clear. Eli, uh, Jehoash doesn't need to worry anymore about Syria. Now, he's got an army that's been trampled down to next to nothing. The big, bad powerhouse of Syria is knocking on the front door. But Elisha says, God will save you. I promise Again, it's even more protection, even more rescue without any evidence of change in Israel. But for some reason, in verse 19, that this whole promise kind of falls apart a little bit. It gets tempered. Uh, because Elisha gets angry and says, you should have struck five or six times, but now you're only going to defeat Syria three times. So what happens? Well, in verse 18... If you notice, there's a little bit of a rhythm going on in this text that gets broken in verse 18 as well. Elisha tells him to take arrows, and he took them. Draw the bow, and he drew it. Open the window, and he opened it. Shoot your arrow, and he shot it. Take another, take more arrows, and he took them. Strike the ground, and then he struck it, and then stopped. And again, it's, it's, it's more of the same from, from a wicked king. What's going on here? In essence, uh, one, one author writes, Elisha basically writes Jehoash a blank check to win the war and have salvation once and for all. And the king kind of shrugs. And he's not zealous enough to see God do this. Apparently, now it's hard, we kind of have to read into it a little bit, but apparently what he should have done is taken those extra arrows and just started striking the ground until those arrows all disintegrate and they're gone. He should have struck five or six times. He should have kept doing it. And it sort of shows his heart that even though he knows he's in a desperate situation, even though the Lord has promised something great, he hears it, it just doesn't mean that much to him. He doesn't care. He's at least half-hearted. He cares a little, bit, a little bit, I suppose. The awesome promise of God gets wasted on this man. 
I mean, if you imagine somebody like Jeff Bezos going out onto the streets, finding a homeless man, and saying, what can I do for you? And the homeless man saying something like, it'd be nice if I had a little bit bigger of a box to sleep in and some blankets, like maybe one of those refrigerator boxes that are nice and big and sturdy, and that'd, that'd be pretty good. No, if, if Jeff Bezos comes up to you with a blank check, you say, give me a house, give me a job, give me new clothes, give me food, give me a refrigerator with food in it. It, it's, it's just so half-hearted and lackluster, and you just want to shake Jehoash and say, take this promise. Do you not understand what God is telling you? Oh, and it's just, it's just so much the wrestling of our own hearts too, right? What happens when we don't make full use of this vow or this resource? Well, we risk becoming like the lukewarm Laodiceans that God spits out of his mouth in Revelation 3. Those who just kind of lost their zeal, they didn't really pursue God one way or the other. They could take him or leave him. They weren't truly pursuing and running after God, and he spits them out. And one of the ways I think this, this tends to show up in our hearts uh, is something along the lines of, God, I, I know you can, but deep down, I'm not sure I really want you to. For instance, something like this. I mean, one of the most dangerous prayers you can pray is, God, teach me patience. Make me a more patient person. And then you have two toddlers running around your house, and God is teaching you patience, you think, I'm not really into this anymore. I think I can do with being an impatient person. Patience all of a sudden doesn't seem that great. <laughs> or putting away anger, putting away bitterness, and then being held accountable for it. Maybe it's even the love of money, right? God tells us the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is a hard thing to put away. I know that. I experience it. I mean, it could be even something like evangelism opportunities. That's another dangerous prayer to pray. God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. I want to be a better witness. Give me a non-believer to share the gospel with. And they walk up to you randomly that week. And isn't it so easy to chicken out and not take advantage? What God tells the Laodiceans in Revelation, that lukewarm people, be zealous and repent. Be zealous after God. Take those promises for sanctification and holiness and a chance to witness and chase after them. You can continue on with the kids' theme. There, there, there are some times where my kids are running away and I can kind of amble after them a little bit. Like a playground, that's pretty safe. When I see my kids running towards the streets, I have to sprint to get them. I have to chase them. I can't walk slowly to them. That's how we have to chase God's promises. All the things that he has said he will do for us and can do for us. Don't amble after them. Chase them. Lest those promises be wasted. 
So we have a merciful God, we have a stirring promise, and here's number three, an unending hope. Verses 20 and 21. Uh, Again, this is kind of another bizarre scene. Elisha has died, and he's been buried, and and like, uh, like with Jesus, when he's buried, he's He's not buried six feet under in a hole. He's probably buried in a cave of some sort, so it's pretty accessible to get to. Um, and as this group of Israelites are burying another man, sort of this, this, this they, get, they get jumped by some pillagers from Moab, and so they sort of quickly toss this man, this corpse, into the grave. He lands on the bones of Elisha, and the next thing you know, he stands up and walks out. It, it, it's a, a crazy resurrection. Not even one that any person was intending to do, which makes it stand out from a biblical perspective. But, but what's interesting is when you think about the end of Elijah's life and the end of Elisha's life, remember Elijah got taken up to heaven without dying in the chariots and the horses of fire. Now Elisha has this sort of bizarre resurrection even though he's dead. I think it's hard to escape the message that we're shown that death has no dominion, right? Death cannot snuff out God's plan, and death cannot snuff out God's power. Now, Elisha's work of ministry has been a very, very long one of lots of salvation and lots of deliverance in the midst of great sin. Now he's passed, and we've sort of seen this turn to a little bit more judgment, and yet, even at the end of Elisha's life, even after he's died, we see that there is always hope, isn't there? There is always hope. Yes, Israel is losing Elisha, but in a sense, they don't need Elisha. They have God. God's power still works, even though this prophet has died. This resurrection reminds us of of the kind of business that God is in. God is in the business of raising dead people to life, isn't he? And this is another sort of paraphrase of the book, Gentle and Lowly. Jesus doesn't come to educate uninformed people. He doesn't come to mend wounded people or advise confused people. He comes to resurrect dead people. That's the kind of business God is in. This resurrection reminds us of that. He's in the business of raising people from the dead. And it gives us hope that if God can raise from the dead, who's to say what else he can't do? Israel's about to go into exile. In fact, those who are reading this text probably are in exile. And it would feel hopeless and despairing and like there was no way out. But what can't God do? Even bones raise a person to life. Do you think God can't sway a heart or change behavior or turn around job prospects or provide for you when you're, when you're so, so needy? I mean, there, there really is a sense in which Christians should be the most optimistic people in the world. Uh, and that's coming from me, very pessimistic. I'm a pessimistic person by nature. And I've got to learn to be optimistic. Because we are the most hope-filled people in the world. 
We don't ever need to be afraid. We should be able to walk out of here this morning and say, boy, I wonder what God is going to do today. I wonder what God is going to do tomorrow. I wonder whose heart he's going to change. I wonder where he's going to lead us next. If death cannot snuff out God's plan or God's power, if death cannot even snuff out the good news of salvation for us, then surely there's nothing that can stop God. It was a wonderful promise. We have a merciful God. We have a stirring promise. We have an unending hope. Fourthly and finally, we have a very sure word. So let's look at verses 24 and 25. I wonder if you, you caught this while we were reading. Three times Joash defeated Ben-Hadad and recovered the cities. Just like three times he struck the ground with the arrows. That acted out prophecy comes true, exactly, word for word, like God said to him. Again, despite the fact that Jehoash prefers to bow down to idols than to the one true living God. God doesn't end up going back on his promise because he didn't get the response that he wanted to from Jehoash. It is a sure and a steadfast word, and God's promises always come true. Uh, and just to put this in perspective, one of the, again, one of the commentaries I, I read made this point. We're surrounded by lies, aren't we? And we're surrounded by false advertising just all the time. Do you maybe take it for granted a little too much? Or maybe do you forget the blessing that it is that God tells the truth to you? Um, uh, this is low-hanging fruit, but politicians, it just feels like, man, it's, it's just hard to trust anything that comes out of politicians' mouths. Social media sites, Facebook and Twitter, have put in new fact-checking uh, people um, to fact-check posts and things uh, in the past few years because there's so much, there's so many false advertising and, and lies out there. Uh, my wife and I, just a couple weeks ago, were um, pitched this idea of this, this special burn-free cream that heals magically any burn that you could ever have within like 12 hours or something like that. It doesn't matter how bad the burn is. You put it on and the next morning it's gone. Um, and we didn't buy it for a second. Uh, or maybe, maybe it's like this. Do you have that friend, again, maybe it's just us, do you have that friend who always tells you such wild stories and you just wonder, is that, could all these things possibly be happening to you? Like, I happened to be in D.C. this weekend, and I, I met the president and shook his hand randomly on the streets, and then I ended up in, like, this high-speed car chase as I was leaving D.C., and just so happened that my car was the same make and model as the perpetrator's car, and then I got pulled over, and we had to sort that all out. And you, Really? That all happened to you? But again, maybe that's just our friends. I don't know. Now, listen, Jesus tells us to be wise as serpents, Right? and innocent as doves. But there is a difference between being wise as a serpent and being cynical. And I do wonder if the culture around us is, tr- is training us and affecting us to be a little bit too cynical, to inherently distrust, to doubt, whether it is politics or social media or even, uh, even I mean, you can Google it, 
You can Google pastor moral failing and you will get, you could read all afternoon the news stories, probably just from this past year, different pastors in America who have fallen. It is hard. It is easy for your heart to become cynical. But if you come to the Bible with a cynical heart, you're not going to understand it. It will crush your confidence in God. It will shred your assurance and hope of salvation. And it's going to wreak havoc with your view of God. Again, so we read it in Hebrews chapter 6. God does not lie. He never lies. He doesn't make a mistake. He doesn't change his mind. Firstly, just because Hebrews 6 tells us that that's just not who he is. The unchangeable character of his purpose. He is just not a being who can lie or change his mind. But he doesn't just tell us to trust him on that. Secondly, he makes an oath and he makes a covenant. He, he binds himself in this man-made type thing to get us to believe him, to prop up our faith, to give us just one more little piece to say, you can trust me. Not only am I just a, I'm a truth teller, but I'm going to bind myself with this covenant. And really wrapped up in this whole last point is that all of these previous vows and resources are always going to be true. They will never fail. Again, if I can quote uh, Gentle and Lowly again, and I'm going to add to it a little bit from this sermon. He makes the point, for God to de-resurrect you, to bring his rich mercy to an end, to go back on his word of salvation, to take away your hope of resurrection, to not open his ears and his heart to you when you cry out in repentance for mercy, Jesus Christ himself would have to be sucked down out of heaven and put back into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You are that safe with all of God's promises. He can't go back on his word any more than Jesus can go back into the grave. That, that is incredible good news. Now, these, all of these different promises and all of these resources and God's covenant and all of these wonderful things, they're going to haunt Israel. They're going to haunt these people who are walking away because it, it is so clear at the end of Elisha's ministry, as this prophet passes away, God is not the one depriving his people God is not the one impoverishing his people. He is always giving them what they need. And, and if, while we can say that as a warning and sternly to Israel, and we say that with some sternness to people who defiantly and stubbornly walk contrary to God, but we say that very tenderly to people who struggle, to people who are racked by guilt, to Christians who are trying their best, but sometimes it feels like they're not getting anywhere. It is a wonderful promise that God always gives us what we need. So I'm going to end with, with one more quote, if I may. How do we keep going as Christians? 
What is it that makes us get out of bed in the morning, ready to face again the joys and sorrows of a broken world? What is it that makes it possible for us to crawl into bed at the end of the day, to fall asleep without being weighed down with worry? How do we do that? How do we get out of bed again and face the sorrows again, face the brokenness again, face the anxiety again, face the evil again? What keeps you going? It's the gospel. And it is only the gospel that Jesus Christ, who sits enthroned in heaven, who intercedes for you always in prayer, who pleads his own blood on your behalf, and is the anchor of your soul, the sure and steadfast anchor of your soul in heaven, is the same yesterday and today and forever. That is good news. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for um, your word to us. Uh, we pray that you would impress its truths deep, deep into our hearts. We, we do believe, but God, we ask that you would help our unbelief. Give us more trust Give us zeal. Give us a good memory of what you've done in the past. Give us hope for the future. Give us endurance and strength. Give us more of your spirit who pours out your love into our hearts. And we do ask, after many long years of following you, that we would not be put to shame at the end of the day. We pray for your, your promises to ring true when we worship you in heaven forever. And we ask this in Jesus' name.